120 years ago, a young man read an article that changed his mind and completely changed the direction of his life. The young man was a Christian of sorts and the article was written by an atheist. This is what it said and I've put some emphasis into it. See the words on the screen. This is what the young man read. If I firmly believed, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another, then religion would mean to me everything. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I should labour in its cause alone. I would take thought for the morrow of eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a life of suffering. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the immortal souls around me soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth into the world and preach to it in season and out of season and my text would be what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul. The name of the young man who read this article by an atheist was Charles Thomas Studd. Many of you may not even know who he is. But in his day, everyone knew who he was. He was a member of a wealthy family, a brilliant Cambridge graduate, and he played cricket for England. He just recently played two matches against the Australians. Yet he abandoned all of it and devoted the rest of his life to serving Jesus Christ as a missionary. His choice was made. And such a choice is not unique. He was but one in a long line of those before and since who live by faith and choose by faith. And today in our study in Hebrews 11, which we've been studying for the whole of this year, We've called it living by faith. Our topic today is faith and choice. That's the theme. Very appropriate. Two young men have made a choice about the next year in their lives. So, it will help to have the verses in front of you. They'll come on the screen, but turn in the Bible to Hebrews 11, page 1210. And we focus on another person who made a very significant choice. One of the ones we've just sung about in our last song. Hebrews 11, 24 through to 26. This is what it says, and we're going to be looking at this together for the next little while. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, here's the word. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value 
than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now, the background to this story, Isabel read for us in Exodus 2. Simply want to say three things about the choice that Moses made, which apply to the choice we must make if we want to live by faith. Here's the first thing. They all alliterate to help you to remember. All right? First of all, it was a crucial choice. A crucial choice. Now, it's, it's a bad thing to have to abandon your child once. To do it twice means real trauma. And yet, this is what the parents of Moses had to do. We saw in our last study, if you are here last week, that after three months, the parents of Moses could no longer keep their child safe from Pharaoh's soldiers who had been given a mandate to execute every baby Hebrew boy. And so they put him in a papyrus basket, coated with pitch, placed him in the reeds along the bank of the river Nile, leaving his oldest sister hiding nearby to wait and watch what might happen to their child. The rest, as they say, is history. Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe in the river, heard the cry of the baby. A slave girl was summoned to fetch the child and Pharaoh's daughter realized at once it was a Hebrew baby. The sister then emerged, probably from the bushes or reeds, and offered the services of a Hebrew woman to act as a wet nurse. Pharaoh's daughter didn't know that the woman that she signed on for the job was actually the mother of the baby. And so she cared for him in absolute security and at government expense. But within a few years, maybe two or three, once the child was weaned, the mother had to take the baby, go to the palace gates, and hand her baby son back to Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses disappeared into the palace of the ruler of the mightiest empire on earth, and there he stayed until he reached maturity. Or, as Hebrews 11 puts it, until he was grown up. So notice, at this point in this man's life, two influences that shaped him. The first and most obvious was his Hebrew, was his Egyptian education. If you look in Exodus, we aren't given many details about what actually happened. But there were all sorts of literature that tells us from this time, that's not in the Bible, about what happened. And if you know the Bible well, you'll know that the first Christian martyr, a man called Stephen, before he was stoned to death, gave a speech or sermon that recounted the history of Israel. It's in Acts chapter 7. And this is what he says about Moses. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Historians of the day tell us that Moses would have learned to read and write in hieroglyphic script, which took us about 1800 years to decipher afterwards. He would have received instruction in astronomy, medicine, mathematics and theology, all from an Egyptian point of view. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and their God was not in the curriculum, nor was Joseph the saviour of Egypt, now long dead and forgotten by Egypt. But not forgotten by the Lord, 
and his people Israel, suffering now as slaves in Egypt, a people to whom Moses still belonged. For notice the second influence, not only his Egyptian education, but his Hebrew heritage. Again, we don't have any details about when and how Moses learned about his true identity and the people to whom he belonged. We don't know what input his family stood at had into his life, whether they had visiting privileges. But we can confidently speculate about one thing. That these parents who recognised that their son was no ordinary child would have prayed for their boy. In his little book of sermons on Hebrews 11, which I think is out of print now, titled Who by Faith, R.T. Kendall writes, Although the time came when they had to give their son to Pharaoh's daughter, Their influence upon their own child was vast and profound. Moses would grow up in Egypt with an Egyptian mother, in an Egyptian culture, and in an Egyptian atmosphere, but he had one thing going for him that no other Egyptian child had, the prayers of godly parents. There comes a time in life when parents have to let go of their kids. To allow them to go out into a world that is hostile to God. Hostile to his word. As we heard this morning from Patrick Sukdale, Hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not easy, but it is necessary. It is not love that holds on. It is love that lets go. Remember that parable Jesus told, the wonderful parable of the prodigal son. It's really, most of the parables have got the wrong names. It's really the parable of the, of the father, not the son, really about the wonderful love of the father. And when you think of the father's love, you think of the father welcoming his son back from the far country. Here's where he first showed his love, when his son came to him and said, Father, give me the portion of goods that that I want and let me go. And his father let him go in love, knowing what was awaiting him. Most of us fathers would have double-locked his bedroom door and kept him in there until he came to his senses. But this story is an encouragement to praying parents, some of whom are here this evening. Because of the decision he took when he had grown up. The words translated when he had grown up literally mean when he had come to full maturity. We actually discover something else interesting from Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, which he must have got from some extra biblical source. He tells us that this time, when Moses had grown up, He was 40 years old. Now that's really grown up. And a further encouragement to praying parents. But as well as an encouragement to praying parents, this story is a challenge to those of us who have prayed for children. Do you have parents who have prayed for you? Some of you do. You may not appreciate it. You may wish they'd get off your back. And let you do your own thing. And some of you are here doing your own thing for the first time. You've come up to university and at last you're free. But there comes a time in your life when you grow up and reach maturity, whatever age it may be. When you have to make a choice in life. You have to decide who you're going to serve. And it's the most important choice you will ever make in life. It is more important than the choice of university and, and, and course you've decided on. It is more important than the person you will marry or choose not to marry. It's more important than your house, your car, 
your job. It's the most crucial choice of all. Literally, the word crucial means at the crux, at the crossroads of your life, you need to make a choice. You see, when you've grown up in a Christian family, you're brought to church and you adopt Christian habits like a suit of clothes. Put them on on Sunday, take them off when you go home. And maybe you're facing that kind of choice. Now, what are you going to do now you're here in Edinburgh? Now, you can break completely free. Or you can even put in an appearance. So when you ring up home and they say, what did you do on Sydney? He said, I went to Charlotte Chapel. Maybe just do it once then. Then when they say, have you been to church? You can say, yes. But sooner or later, you have to make a choice. Who will you serve? Who will you follow? It's not a matter of life and death. It's more important than that. It's a matter of eternal life and death. For my share, shared before, but for those who don't know, I myself grew up in a Christian family. I was taken to church in a pram when I was a baby. I was taken to Sunday school. We had a morning Sunday school, morning church. We had an afternoon Sunday school, a prayer meeting, evening church, youth fellowship. By the time I was 12, I could have told you the Christian faith. By the time I was 12, I could quote around 500 verses of the Bible by heart. Because we got cash prizes in Sunday school. <laughs> so it's a kind of rich kid, you know. <laughs> I knew how to become a Christian, but I was not one and my parents knew I was not one. I wanted to live my own life and I decided I would become a Christian shortly before I expired. I did not do anything terribly outrageous, but I was in rebellion against God. Then one day, under duress, I was taken one Saturday evening to a Christian rally. And again, because God the Holy Spirit spoke to me, a man stood up and he said, My text this evening is Joshua 24, verse 15. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And through God's love and grace, that evening, I chose to follow Jesus Christ. And it has changed everything in my life for the past 40 plus years. Okay, you're all working it out. I'm older than I look. Now, (laughs) you may be a teenager in your 20s, 30s, something, but have you made the crucial choice? Have you personally committed your life and your future to Jesus Christ? Moses did when he was grown up. The verbs used in Hebrews 11 are all decisive verbs in Greek. They point to a crisis chose, refused, regarded, when a choice was made as distinct from Moses' habitual way of life. But such a choice is never an easy choice. So here's the second point about this choice you're going to have to make. Not only a crucial choice, it's a costly choice. The choice Moses made was a very costly one. If he was to identify with the people of God, it would cost him everything he had in worldly terms. Our verses emphasise that. Look again at the verses. What Moses gave up. We're told, first of all, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He gave up, first of all, all his privileges. Until now, his title, used in deference by all the people of Egypt. You remember the musical, if you ever find yourself near Ramesses, you get down on your knees. Well, you know, he did the same thing with his sons as well. He was Prince Moses. There are even some ancient traditions that suggest he was being groomed to be the next pharaoh. Now he decides to abandon that. 
Not only his title, but all the privileges with it. Notice also, within the statement, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It cost something to Moses, not only his privileges, but it cost him his family as well. His relationship. What do you think Pharaoh's daughter felt about her adopted son's decision? Patrick shared this morning as a Muslim how he became a Christian and went home and it broke his mother's heart when he said, I've become a Christian. That kind of cost today. I remember some years ago, baptized not in this church, a young lady from a leading Muslim family in North Africa. Very big decision to be, get, be baptized. You can say you're a Christian. Her father's a leading member of the society there. She heard that her father told people, my daughter is dead. That's the cost. The cost for Moses. But it was absolutely necessary if the higher claims of God were to take priority in his life. Did Jesus not speak in similar terms when he said that loving him means loving more him than your mother and father and your closest relatives? It's a costly business. Not only for that, Moses also gave up what our, our verse describes as pleasures. Will you notice what it says about these pleasures? The Bible is always specific. It says Moses chose not to enjoy the pleasures of sin. Christians, sometimes we say silly things. We say, for example, and one of them is here. We say, there is no enjoyment in sin. Of course there is. Why do people do it? If they didn't, if it wasn't enjoyable, people wouldn't be attracted to it and run after sin. Imagine telling, you know, Joseph, Joseph, you've got a choice this evening. You can go to a riotous party and orgy at Pharaoh's palace, or how about a bit of pyramid building under the whip of an overseer, you know, in the hot sun? What do you choose? Which is more enjoyable? Come on, get a grip. Of course, that's not the whole story, as we'll see. But sin does offer pleasures. And Moses' choice was costly because he gave up those pleasures. Many people do not become Christians because they don't want to give up the pleasures of sin. That's the bottom line. If you're to follow Jesus Christ, there are certain things that you are in the habit of doing now which will have to stop. You need to give them up. That's the cost of following Christ. Notice also, Moses chose, of course, to suffer, not to sin. And he also gave up Treasures. We're told that he abandoned all the treasures of Egypt. It was costly to leave behind the wealth of Egypt. Not just in money, but in learning and culture. This is the greatest nation on earth. The highest and most sophisticated society on the planet. And Moses is going to give it all up to follow a bunch of slaves. In fact, to lead a bunch of slaves, even worse. So his choice was costly. And nothing has changed. It is always costly to live by faith. It is especially costly to be a Christian. Jesus constantly spoke about it. Here's just one quote, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus made it clear in large print. Read through the Gospels. It is not small print on the bottom page that you didn't notice till he became a Christian. If anybody's not told you that, I'm sorry. You've been called under a false illusion. Jesus said it was costly to follow him. So, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, let me simply ask you this evening, what is it costing you? What has it cost you? What is it costing you? Are you trying to live a cost-free Christian life? 
Or are you willing to stand up and be counted and to make the crucial and costly choice? Now, if you've understood this far, you must be asking yourself a question, especially if you're not yet a Christian. And it is this. If it is so costly to live by faith, to be a follower of Jesus, why should I do it? Here's the third and final point. It was not only crucial and costly choice, it was a considered choice. You see, the choice Moses made when he was 40 years ago was no heat of the moment matter. It may appear that way when he killed the Egyptian. And that was rash and impetuous. But it had been building up for years and a point came when he decided that he would no longer identify with Pharaoh and Egypt but with God's people. Too often, people are called to make choices for Christ solely on the basis of emotion. Now, don't get me wrong, emotion is involved. When I became a Christian, I cried. It's a shame that that some people cry more easily than others. I'm one of them. But if it had been purely emotion, then my choice would have only lasted as long as the emotion. Now, when you follow Christ, Jesus says, count the cost. And the word used to here, the word translated regarded, makes this clear. It means to think carefully, to consider. Now, if you were here, time goes so quickly. Was it last Sunday when we began the series in James? Someone tell me, it was last Sunday, was it? What? Last Sunday morning I was preaching on James. It's a long week in politics and in pastoral work as well. Um, <laughs> We looked at those verses in the beginning of James. We're going to look at them in our small groups. You want to join a small group? The list on the walls near where you live. Just sign up. Go along. It'll be great. Um, it said, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's the same Greek word that's used here. It means to weigh up your options in the balance. Now, Moses had two options in the balance. His options were to identify with Egypt or to identify with God's people, the Hebrews. Now, maybe some people could have said, hang on a minute, just, just pause here a minute, Moses. You can really do both. I mean, after all, think about Joseph. He did both. He became prime minister. But times had changed. For while Joseph was sent by God to feed the Hebrews in Egypt, Moses was sent and called by God to lead the Hebrews from Egypt. Had to make a choice. So, how did Moses make his choice? Now, there's something really fascinating here, which you may not have noticed before, but look very carefully at our text in Hebrews 11. If you've been a Christian counsellor or friend, Moses had come to you and said, I've got a real big problem. I'm wrestling with this issue. Don't know what to do. Shall I identify with my own people, these Hebrew slaves, or shall I stick with Egypt? What, what's your advice? I suspect most of us would have downplayed the benefits of Egypt and highlighted the benefits of following God. We'd have said something like, Moses, all those pleasures and treasures and status and privilege, they're nothing really. You're never going to find any real satisfaction in them. Just think how more satisfying and fulfilling it will be to follow God and His way and belong to your own people. But our verses tell us that He weighed up matters differently. Around 350 years ago, a man called Matthew Henry wrote a commentary on the Bible. It's still in print. If you want a good commentary on the Bible, the language is a bit old-fashioned, but it's well worth reading. This is what he says on these verses. See how Moses weighed matters. 
In one scale, he put the worst of religion, the disgrace of Egypt. In the other, he put the best of the world, the treasures of Egypt, in his judgment, directed by faith, the worst of religion weighed down the best of the world. Interesting perspective, isn't it? See, that's the key to the decision he took. His decision was directed by faith. This is what he did by faith. But faith in what? Well, faith in God's promises. And God's promises always relate to the future. If you look at Hebrews 11, very first verse makes a statement about what faith is. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. So Moses had faith in God's promises concerning the future. For the present, he was offered a lot by Egypt. The pleasures of sin. But when he weighed them up in his mind, when he thought it through clearly... He recognised these only lasted, says our verse, for a short time. The treasures of Egypt were real. We still admire them when we go to museums. Tutankhamun, golden masks, amazing stuff. But Moses abandoned them, our verse says, because he was looking ahead to his reward. The word translated reward is the word used of a final payment of a wage at the end of a day's work. Moses realised there was a final accounting coming on his life. And the long-term benefits would outweigh any short-term loss. So because he had a long-term goal, Moses was prepared to suffer in the short term. Look again. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now, that's a very interesting verse in another respect. How could Moses said to suffer disgrace for the sake of Christ 1,500 years before Jesus appeared on the scene? Well, I could bore you for a long time by giving you all the answers that have been given. We don't have time. However, what it clearly does indicate and how appropriate on our suffering church Sunday is this. The kind of disgrace that Moses and all like him suffer is the same shame and suffering personified fully in Jesus. Suffering disgrace for the sake of Christ. You see, you may still not be convinced about the costly choice you must make, but consider this. It is the way of Christ. We follow one who suffered and died. One who calls us to follow him by the same path. Jesus made the considered choice. Same word used in Philippians 2 we saw the other week. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He left the glory, came to earth, suffered and died a criminal's death for the glory that would follow his exaltation. We sang about it one day every knee, one day every tongue. And despite the terrible cost, far more terrible than anything we will ever imagine, He chose the shame and disgrace and indignity of the cross, crucified as a common criminal outside the city gates, a sign of his social, religious exclusion. So, the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, over the page, chapter 13, here's his conclusion as he comes to the end of this remarkable letter. Verse 12. And so Jesus, 
also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy (coughs) through his own blood. Now, here's the challenge. Let us then go to him outside the camp, being excluded, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Can you see it's the same thing? Look to the future. Make a considered choice. So we are challenged, as we conclude, to weigh up the options of whether we will follow Christ or not. It is a crucial choice, a costly choice, but it must be a considered choice. The Lord Jesus tells all would-be disciples, before you follow me, weigh up the options. Count the cost of following me, but also the cost of not following me. Here are the words of Jesus. To count the cost. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Now here's the word of Jesus. Here's the cost of not following. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. There's the cost. A considered choice. And as I conclude, I simply ask you, have you weighed up the options of following Christ? But have you weighed up the options if you don't follow him? The eternal options and the consequences. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world, yet lose his own soul? Those words of Jesus, quoted by an atheist, challenged C.T. Stud to give up all to follow Christ. I conclude, really conclude now, with the words that C.T. Stud gave when he explained why he did it. This is what he said. And he was a Christian at this point, like some of us are. I had known about Jesus dying for me, But I never understood that if he died for me, then I didn't belong to myself. Redemption means buying back. So that if I belonged to him, either I had to be a thief and keep what wasn't mine, or else I had to give up everything to God. When I came to see that Jesus Christ had died for me, it didn't seem hard to give up all for him. Let's just pray together as we...